What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 124 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders, find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, it's official. We are wrapping up 2021. Hard to believe. This is our fourth year on the Lynchwood Leader podcast. We started in 2017 the fall of 2017, and here we are wrapping up the fall of 2021, and we have had 123 amazing episodes. It's so funny when I think about a person, I'll remember different things they might say, and I'll quote different episodes, some more than others. But I can honestly say, out of the 123 that I've done, the one that we're going to listen to together today is the one that I have probably talked about the most. Lessons learned, principles that were for me, that personal application for me. In this episode, I get to sit down with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is an educator. He is an author of some New York Times bestselling books. He is a podcast host. He is an international speaker pastor, the wisdom that flows through his words, I'll tell you what, blessed my soul the day we spent time together. And there are some seasons that I've walked through in ministry and I'm going to walk through in life that he just spoke into so well. So I hope you enjoy this episode, but I'll tell you this, I really enjoyed this episode. And I want you to know that each time uh, I say this to friends all the time, even if nobody ever listened in, and there's a lot of you that listen in, but even if nobody else ever listened in, it was these episodes are for me and my leadership and my journey and my wisdom and uh, man, just, just filling me up and I am pumped for you to get to listen into this conversation. The whole goal of the Literal Leader podcast was if I could sit a microphone at lunch with America's greatest leaders and you got to listen in, what would you get? Well, today you're going to see what you would get with this amazing leader. He is living leadership. He is a picture of what you want to do in the area of leadership. And make sure and check the show notes to see links to his books, links to his podcast, and all the other things he's got available. But for now, I want you to pull out something to write on. If you got your tablet, your Remarkable, your iPad, or you've got somewhere to take notes, this is an episode you want to write down. So I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Dr. Mark Rutland. Well, Dr. Rutland, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Thank you, Mike. I'm blessed to be asked. Thank you very much. 
Well, you have had an illustrious career in ministry, 50 plus years. Is it hard to look back now and go, man, I have been a pastor. I've been a college president. I've led and lead a massive organization. Is it hard to collect that, that you've run this race for that amount of years? Well, yeah, I began in the ministry right at the end of the civil war. So (laughs) yeah. uh, I see what you're asking, and and there is a sense in which collecting everything uh, is is a challenge. On the other hand, I, I've been very intentional in trying to um, in trying to analyze what that all meant. Mm-hmm. What I didn't want was to come to the end of of fifty years or however long God gives me of ministry, and and have instead of having 50 years of experience, I had one year 50 times. Boy, that's good. I, I wanted to to learn everything there was to learn from it. And so mm. uh in fact that that uh, that book relaunch, I know you read that, and that's the book that hit the New York Times bestseller list. That's the one that I did that with. I said, what did I learn here? It's fine to say I survived three major turnarounds, <laughs> but, but what did I actually gain from it? And and that kind of helped me to use your term to collect it all. That's so good. I know I heard Sam Chan, Dr. Chan say, we're always learning, unlearning, and relearning. And he said, it doesn't matter where we get in our journey. That That's part of the process. That's right. That's exactly right. And Unfortunately, um, most of us have to spend more time unlearning. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is way true. That is way true. Well, if we went back to high school and I ran into you before all this journey started, where do you see your career headed at that point as a young Mark Rutland growing up? Where had you pointed your trajectory for the future? Yeah, I was uh, I, I was a, uh, somewhat of an athlete in high school. I mean, nothing illustrious. I was the quarterback on the football team and I, I was a point guard on the basketball team, but I knew that my, you know, I only lacked a few things making it to the pros, uh, speed, talent, <laughs> ability, size. Uh, but apart from that, so I, I knew right away that that wasn't really anything but a high school career, though it was a good career, but it was just high school. Um, I also ran for and got elected as the president of the student body at my high school. So that whetted my appetite for politics. Mm. And so if you had met me as a junior or senior in high school, I would have said, I, I want to spend my career in, in politics. Wow. When did that change? When did you, when did God get you and turn your head towards the life he had for you? Yeah. Uh, it, it was interesting. It happened in two phases. One was actually before that. I had um, early in high school had a a kind of a, a sense that I was called to the ministry. I suppressed it. Um, mm. It just it just was such a challenge for me to lay aside the things I wanted um, in in terms of the things that I felt he wanted. So I really suppressed it after. My first during my first year in college, after I graduated from high school, I went to the University of Maryland, and uh, I was in the uh, PE and recreation department. That's where I was going to school, and um, and I had a lot of friends on the basketball team, University of Maryland basketball team. So I I was in the Cole Field House watching them practice, mm. 
and out of the blue. I, I'm, I mean, Mike, I was just watching a college basketball practice and it just rushed in on me. Uh, you're, you're not doing what I ask you to do. Mm. Uh, and I, I went home, I had a brand new bride uh, and I went home and told her, uh, I'm, I'm going to lay aside this career trajectory and head for the ministry. And she was 100% for it. She was always a better and more mature Christian than I, and still is. <laughs> she was 100% for it. But that was the, the turning point, which was actually a revisitation of a turning point. Boy, that's so And you met her in high school, correct? Junior high. Junior high. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, she was in the eighth grade, and I was in the ninth grade. And wow. um, we dated all through those years. And so I graduated a year ahead of her and went to the University of Maryland and did a year of college. And when she graduated, we got married. That's amazing. That is amazing. And so everybody would make the assumption, so God brings your lives together in junior high. God gives you a clear calling while watching a college basketball practice, which is not the norm. And you no. know this is this is where I'm going then I think everybody's assumption will be, well, then if I've lined up my life with what God's calling me to do, everything's going to be easy sailing. Was it always easy sailing for you and your bride in those early years? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was, it was fun. If I can make a distinction, Um, we were poor as church mice. (laughs) Um, My family were of a extremely limited means so when I went to college, I just told my dad, I want to go to college. He said, great. I was the first person in my family ever to go to college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they were, there was no help there financially. I just packed my stuff and drove off to school. And so I, I worked two or three part-time jobs. I was a certified referee in several different sports. So I refereed basketball, um, some of it was uh, was uh, of that was fun. I learned um, instant decision making, quick analysis, and handling uh, people stressed out, pe- freaked out people in crisis. <laughs> uh, most of that was in church league basketball. That's where <laughs> that was where it got crazy. And I'm sure it was the Baptist. I'm sure it was oh, the Baptist oh, causing I, most of the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that was. Uh, that was all fun. We were young. We were playing house, uh, and and we were we were excited about life and ministry and that kind of thing. But but uh, we just both worked crazy hours. I mm-hmm. drove a school bus in the morning. I drive a school bus in the afternoon. Go buy groceries at a grocery store down in New Hampshire Avenue in Washington D.C. Uh, go home. Uh, Wednesday nights I refereed on Saturday. I refereed five games on Saturday by the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it was, it was a fun time, but it was very, it was very uh, challenging financially and staying on it. Yeah. Staying challenging. I, um, I did not enjoy the process of formal education. It was, it's a strange thing for me to wind up being the president of two different <laughs> universities. The joke on the angels, um, because I didn't enjoy the process myself. I was bored yep. to, to tears, and um, but I knew what I wanted. Mm. So I I was afraid if I sat down to rest, I wouldn't finish the race. So 
I just, I started college two weeks after I graduated from high school. Mm. I went year round. And, and now I can't remember why I was in a hurry, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I was at some point. Yep. And um, <clears throat> so then I went to my master's degree and then a PhD. My wife finished college and she took a master's degree. We have five degrees between us and we finished it without one penny of student debt. That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> it was it was incredible. Of course, everything was cheaper in those days. Yep. But I, I you know, I made uh, I made a hundred dollars a month in my first ministry position. That is unbelievable. You know, as you as you look at it now, what are some things that school couldn't teach you? that you learned in leadership. So I think so many guys, especially guys young in the ministry or young in their careers in sales, or we got a lot of college coaches listening in. What are some things you learn by doing about leadership that you really probably can't learn from a class or a book? You know, that's a really good question. And it's somewhat of an embarrassing question because I would say almost everything I mm. learned about leadership, I learned in the, practical realities of life. Um, one of the first major um, moments of ministry that I that I experienced happened uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I got the opportunity to be on the varsity football team. Uh, and of course, you you know, the ninth grade quarterback, uh, he's, he's nothing but cannon fodder, right? Uh, but there was one game where we were down by like 42 points with three minutes to go. And the coach you know, didn't want to get anybody good. In. So they sent me, he sent me in. Well, I ran into the huddle to call the play. And uh, one of the older guys, a senior offensive lineman said, you know, who do you think you are? You don't, you don't come in here and call a play. And I knew instantly this was a critical moment. And, and I said, I'll tell you who I think I am. I think I'm a ninth grader who doesn't know as much about football as you do, but I just stood up and pointed over to the sideline. And I said, who I am is the guy that that man sent in. Mm. If you don't want me to call the play, go check it out with him. Otherwise here's the play. And it was one of the, actually a defining moment in the ninth grade. How about that? So it, it, I always say to people, Find your security in the in the inherent authority uh, of your call. You can say to life, and Satan says to you, "Who do who do you think you are?" And that's when you you point to God and say, "I'm nobody. I'm the guy that guy sent in." Oh, good night. That is so. I have never heard anybody say it quite like that before. But that is so true, though, because at every point, it's almost like for so many men that go, I, I don't know it. My wife is so much further along spiritually. I, I can never be the spiritual leader of my home. All of us. <laughs> All of us. That's right. But yet, God said you are. So take the ball and go call the play. You're ask your guy. wife to pray. That's what I tell right. guys all the time. Just ask your wife to pray. She'll be great, but you took the leadership. Ask her to pray. And she'll be she'll be thrilled by it. She'll I be like thrilled it. by it. That's so good. I've never heard anybody say it quite like that before. That is so good. That is so good. I know in your ministry, you spent uh, a few years with a great Paul Walker. 
here in Atlanta, who is a legend in ministry here in the city. What are some lessons you learned from Dr. Walker that helped you in your leadership when you went on to the universities and when you went on to a large church, which we'll talk about in Orlando? Yeah, Dr. Paul Walker and Mount Perrin uh, Church were really the, they were the directional change moment in my life. I was um, going at one speed, uh, one, one direction, and Dr. Walker hit me and and it was just poof, that mm, way. Mm. He, was, he was an incredible aha moment for me. Uh, I saw leadership and management uh, at, the, at the highest uh, altitude that you could imagine. He was managing, the, at that time, the largest Pentecostal church east of the Mississippi, wow. 9,200 members, which is, and now there are many churches that size, but you got to remember this was 1988. That's right. That's right. And, um, he is actually the man who invented the phrase one church in multiple locations. Really? When they started the North campus with yeah, Mount Perry North? Golly. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Dr. Walker that, that will tell you something. I literally, I was doing mission work in the, largely in the third world, but I had preached at Mount Perry multiple times. What Dr. Walker needed was an associate who could preach in tandem with him and hold the crowd. Yep. Now, whether or not he had a wise decision, I'll have to let history decide, <laughs> but he, he came to the conclusion of all the guest speakers that he had, I was the most likely to do that. So when he called me to be the associate at Mount Perrin, I came literally from Africa onto the platform of this huge, prosperous, upscale, uh, you walk through our parking lot and it was just one luxury car after another. I used to always, I used to call it St. Mink and all sables, <laughs> uh, but we, it, it was a very new atmosphere. So my first Sunday, I'm on the platform. You remember in the old days, the preachers sat up on the platform. That's right. That's right. Yep. We were sitting on the platform in the middle of the music service, 300 voice choir, 40 piece orchestra, thousands of people. And in the middle of the music, <laughs> Dr. Walker leans over to me and he says, are those your best shoes? <laughs> and I, said, I said, well, Dr. Walker, they're my only dress shoes. And he said, if you can't afford a pair, I'll buy them. But he said, I don't want to see those shoes on this platform next week. Holy and then he looked, cow. He looked me right in the eye and he said, now remember this new platform, new shoes. Now, what I could have done is take offense over that or something like that. What I realized is he was telling me, when you step up to a new level, everything has to step up. Mm. And, and from that moment on, I felt God said one thing to me, learn everything you can learn. Mm. And I, I would say to anybody that's listening, every position you fill, if you're the offensive coordinator at some small school, you are doing what you do. You're called to do that and you need to do it and do it well. But remember, you're not only doing what you do there, you're learning what you can learn there. Mm, mm. So what you, everything you do is an, is a place where you serve and a place where you prepare for the next place you serve. And it's easy to miss that. 
it's easy to miss it because we're we're so focused on I'm only here for a moment I, and this is this is my my apple job this is the one I want so I'm going to work to get there and then you miss all the experiences you miss all the yeah. things they're equal and opposite errors on yeah. the one side, you can be so intent on getting to that next place that you screw it up where you are yeah yeah and and the other side is you get so focused on the on that narrow gauge operation that you're trying to do really well, you forget. I coached a, a girls high school girls basketball team one time, so I had this second string guard. Until we were ahead forty points, she never went in. <laughs> it was because the first girl was phenomenal. So, but every time the game started, the second string guard would come and sit by me and she'd ask me questions. And finally I said to her, you're really working hard to get Beth's spot, aren't you? And she said, coach, let's be honest. I will never have Beth's job. She said, I want your job. Wow. And I said, this girl, this girl has got it. She's got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That is so good. And after your time at Mount Perrin, you went straight into the the, the university, correct? No, I, I went first to Calvary Church in Orlando. That's right. You went down to Calvary. That's right. How was that experience in because they were they were coming off some really, really hard times. How oh did, my God. what was that like leaving this? I mean Mount Perrin during those years, being a citizen here in Atlanta, a lot of good friends that went to Mount Perrin, Mount Perrin was going. I mean, they were setting the what what North Point and so many other churches are doing in the 2000s. Mount Perrin did in the 80s and the 90s. You go from that to a church that has set the pace before, but now they're limping a little bit from some things that have gone on. What was that like to walk into and what would, what different was required of you? Yeah. Uh, limping a little bit is like calling world war II a minor scuffle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was totally bankrupt. Uh, wow. They were ready to default on a $17.4 million loan. Uh, they were 120 days behind to the vendors the day I walked on the campus. Uh, there had been a massive sexual scandal. Then followed, that was followed by financial mismanagement. I, I wasn't even paid there for a year. Mm. And, uh, my uh, independent missions ministry ag agreed to pay me for one year and see if we could save the church, see if we could turn it around. And uh, my board said, we'll pay you for a year. And they said, but if at the end of a year, you can't see any light at the tunnel, then you, you either have to let them handle you or you have to leave. Yeah. So it was a phenomenal, phenomenal turnaround. It was when I left there, the chairman of the Orange County, Florida, it was Orlando, Orange County, Florida, um, uh, Chamber of Commerce said in a meeting where we were, they were sort of telling me goodbye. And he said, he said, in all my years of business here in Orange County, the most miraculous business turnaround I've ever seen is Calvary Church. Mm. And, and, but it was harrowing, my oh. friend. We, it was hanging by a thread from the minute I walked in the door. And uh, so Dr. Walker said, why are you going, <laughs> going there? 
And I, I just, I love Dr. Walker. I adore him. He's my hero. But at some point or another, you just want to coach your own team. That's right. That's right. I get it. <laughs> you, you don't you have to go from Michigan State to Slippery Rock. <laughs> <laughs> and literally a slippery rock. Oh, <laughs> literally. So how it, hard was it for you as a leader to change that culture? Because, there, I mean, every guy in sports knows a losing culture I mean, they expect things to go bad way before they go bad. They're expecting it to go bad. How was the process of changing that mindset that that group was in as they're watching this thing slip through their fingers? Yes, and uh, that's a very good question. In my view, the the actual, the critical issue in any turnaround, I've, I've been a part of three huge organizational turnarounds. And in my view, the critical issue in a turnaround is actually transforming the internal culture. Absolutely. Outside marketing, um, getting new people in, all of that kind of thing. But the internal culture is actually the, the critical issue. And to every leader that's watching, I would, I would remind you of all the jobs that you have, you are the chief culture officer. That's right. And, and, and what, what the leader has to do is set their face like a flint mm. to change the culture from, uh, from losing to winning, from uh, fear to anticipation. And, and it's a, that is the constant 24-hour-a-day job of the leader in a turnaround is, is transforming culture. Have to be some hard decisions made. Yeah. Tough. Um, I, um, I sacked when I, uh, the coaches that are listening are probably not going to be excited to hear this, <laughs> but I sacked all the coaches when I, when I came and wasn't because they had been losing. I, can I say, this sounds a little abrupt. It wasn't because they had been losing. It was because they were losers. Yeah. The, the, their mentality, they thought they were sad. They were defeated. The, the head basketball coach sat on the sideline during basketball practice. I watched him. He'd sit in a folding chair on the sidelines and just shake his head while his team is practicing. And, uh, and we were, we were, it's, it was not a division one team. We were playing at a lower division, uh, but it was, it was just bedraggled, defeated everything. And I, I, I cleaned house and started Mm. over. And I was at that university for 10 years. We won, uh, 12 national championships in five different sports. Wow. Now sports is not everything. It's not, it's not why a university exists, whether the coaches listening, believe that or yeah. not, but it is part of the culture. No doubt about it. And, and you transform, uh, you transform a small, it was a, when I went there, it was a small college, 900 students at the college level. When I left, we had nearly 4,000 students at the university level. But I'd been there. I'll tell you one of the critical moments. It really was a thrilling moment to me. About three years into this hard turn at at Southeastern, one of the faculty members stood up in a faculty meeting and he said, this is the first time I felt like I was a professor at a college and not a a counselor at a day camp. And I knew knew it was turning. Mm. That's when, that was the exact moment when I knew the culture was shifting. 
That is so good. That is, and athletics really do. I, I remember those years being at Liberty back 87 to 91 and Dr. Falwell. And it, and it was, I mean, that place was about to go under. My parents would call all the time going, I think the school's going under. We keep getting a letter underlined in red from Dr. Falwell saying they need more money because it was in such bad straits. But I remember him over and over and over saying, we will change the world through athletics and music. That's the way that we're going to change this world through athletics and music. And, and you're going to change the culture of the campus that way. And so that is incredible. Did you, was it weird going from being a pastor to being a university president? Was that a weird transition for you? Well, it was in a sense, I had never worked at a college until I became the president of one. Unbelievable. They hired me for two reasons. One was, I, I had an earned PhD and they wanted that. Yep. The second was I had, I wasn't hired because I had college experience. I was hired because I had turnaround experience. Yep. So, so in a sense, it was hugely different in another sense. Leadership is leadership. Yeah. yeah. Management is management. Probably the, probably the woman who can run a, a chain of hardware stores could also run uh, uh, an infotech company. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there are things I, that I didn't know about college life nomenclature. There were there were things that I that I didn't really grasp. But you you can hire an academic dean that can explain it to you. That's right. But but what you can't hire is another president. You got to be the president. That's really good. That and is really good. I found that a lot of the concepts were transferable at Calvary at Southeastern and then at ORU, you talk about a university that was messed up. It was, it was ORU. And so that was the third turnaround I was involved in. And that the book relaunch really is kind of dealing with those three turnarounds. Mm. You are a student of leadership. There's no doubt about that. You still are hands-on in leadership. What do you think is the difference between just being a leader and being a spiritual leader. So there's somebody listening and they, they're going, all right, I, I love leadership, but man, I believe that my faith really should play into this. What do you think is the biggest difference between just good leadership and somebody that's a spiritual leader? Yeah. Uh, the issue, the issue is one, no one can actually lead outwardly beyond the energy and strength that there is inwardly. Um, and that doesn't mean they can't be successful in leadership in an outward way. There are people that are, that are hugely successful, but there is an inner vacuum, which limits them in some way, mm, mm. whatever that is. And I would say that where you find that inner resource in your relationship with God and where, where that fuels your understanding of your character, your decisions, how you treat people, uh, how, how you live. We're not supposed to succeed in the presidency and destroy our wives right. or husbands or whoever. We're not supposed to succeed in coaching and all the assistant coaches hate us. Yep. That's, that's like not the goal. See, <laughs> so, so the spiritual leadership is leadership that derives from the inside out mm. and, and transcends ability, intellect, um, knowledge, experience that there is, 
it, it goes to another dimension mm. that, that you lead out of who you are in God mm. and who God is in you. That's so good. How do you keep growing? How do you, here you are, I mean, you could, you could say, you know what? I've learned all I need to know. How do you keep growing as a leader and as a spiritual leader? Well, I, in the first place, I, <laughs> it, that question, I, I don't feel I've learned everything there. I, I mean, I genuinely don't feel that. I keep learning. I keep reading, studying, experiencing. On the other hand, uh, I, years ago, I, I had an interview with a, an Air Force general. And something he said just stuck with me. I was very young, but, I, but what he said stuck with me. He said, listen to me. At some point, everybody has to come to the place where you realize I no longer can fly planes. What I can do is train pilots. Mm. And I just, it just clicked. Wow. So what I'm really enjoying at this point is not um, running something. I'm not the chief executive officer of a university or, a, or a, anything what I'm really finding satisfaction in is using what I know in speaking, public speaking, preaching, teaching, and the National Institute of Christian Leadership, which I teach. Right now, what I'm finding satisfaction in is training pilots. Never. But if, you're, if you're going to do that, that's right. You you have to stay abreast of the science. That's you right. can't fly biplanes, right? <laughs> so. So at some point, if you're you got to keep moving, or you are you become irrelevant in the in training pilots, and you become obsolete. That's right. And in, in our generation, you know, when I'm growing up, I only know what somebody's telling me now. Every student that you teach has access to the world in the palm of their hand and can yes. learn it from anywhere. And but you've earned that credibility that they go, yeah, he knows how to fly the planes I'm flying. And he seems like he knows what he's doing and I want what he has. And I, I will yeah. tell you, you know, and I've been in this, I'm 51. Now I look at it and go, a lot of the guys that I used to look up to aren't in it anymore. You know, they're not even, they're not teaching even how to fly a biplane. They've sort of gone off the map for whatever reason. And to see guys that have done it at the level you've done it at with the passion that you've done it at and the humility the, in your answer, just a second ago, Dr. Etlin, I don't feel like I've learned everything. Makes everybody want to learn from you. And that's that's what's fascinating is I follow you online. And of course, I've never met you before, but I followed you for years. That humility comes across and that humility to go, I don't have it all together, but I'm still working and I'm still moving and I'm still growing. It's a big deal. You know, one of the things that's gracious of you to say that one of the things I'm enjoying and experiencing at this stage of my life and leadership is something you mentioned in passing. Let me go back to it. And that is that I find younger people and younger, I'm 73. I'm, it's not that I'm, when I say younger, I may include people that are in their fifties. <laughs> Almost everybody's younger than I am. So, but what I'm finding is younger leaders, they don't just want to learn it from a book or from a video. They want to be with you. They want to be with you. And I think I, I'm not, I think I underestimated what that meant to them. Mm. Um, and, and I am, I'm finding a great deal of gratification in being with them because they want to be with me. Mm. 
I'm, I'm, in, I'm enjoying that aspect of, of this phase of my life. It, that, that iron sharpens iron takes on a whole new relevance. It really does. And that, I would agree with you. I mean, we got plenty of books. I got plenty of resources. I just don't have plenty of people. And and those people are the people that keep making you better. And uh, that's really good. That's really good. You've written so many amazing books, but there's one that caught my heart. And it's it caught my heart because David, to me, represents so many people. And yes, he was a king but David was real and David's identifiable and David was a man of highs and lows. What was it about David? You wrote the book, David, the great. What was it about David that captured you that you said, I get David because what would you say? Well, when I, I, I sort of, I know this will sound odd. I sort of fell in love with David early on uh, and he became more than, Another, he became a life study for me. Um, if you if you consider all of the leaders in the Bible, so let, let's leave Jesus out. Obviously, in my view, David is the most complex, multifaceted leader in the Bible. Um, complicated, uh, a genius. Uh, I got interviewed by an, another guy. And he, he, he came into the interview with an agenda. He wanted me to say, David is just like the rest of us. He just tapped into God. And I said, you know, my friend, that's just really kind of like not true. Yeah. I said, if David was one of those guys who had been put down in any field of endeavor, in any generation, he would have excelled. Yep. He was, he was a, a warrior. He was a politician. He was a startup man. He he's really the founder of his nation, Saul notwithstanding. He he's the founder of the city of Jerusalem. He was a consummate businessman. He ran the largest capital campaign in the history of humanity. Uh, he raised the money for the temple. Uh, that and he left that money banked for Solomon. And um, and he was the number one donor. That's right. Uh, now he was also a man with the, a lot of these giants when they're good, they're very good. And when they're bad, they're horrid. And, and David was a man with, with huge failures, Mm. but to me, rather than that eliminating him from my field of interest, it made me more interested in him. How did he overcome it? How did he deal with these failures? They, he had failures, but they didn't destroy him. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to understand all of that as well. So it really was a lifetime study of David. And I, I, I think of all the people I've ever studied in the Bible or in secular history, there's nobody quite like David. Agreed. 100% agreed. And I love that thought on he had huge failures. Some of them we all know. I heard you in a in a sermon. You were talking about David, and you said even people that don't they think David and Bathsheba is Shakespeare. I mean, they just assume they they know the phrase David and Bathsheba. But he had lots of other failures, even little ones that went off up until that point. What was the key to David bouncing back so well from all those failures as you've studied him? Good. The fundamental key to David's life. 
I, I always say this, David was like a, one of these really powerful running backs. That, that, to me, that's how I think of him. If he, if he got through the line and came at you, you might bring him down. But there are two things that are going to happen. He's going to fall for three and a half yards. Yep. And he's going to hurt you in the process. <laughs> that's right. And because David was so fixed on the goal that if he fell, he seemed to always fall forward. And he always fell at God's feet. So when, when David's sins were revealed, when he was confronted, when, he, when his failures became manifest, David never denied it. He immediately said, I did it. He took responsibility. The second thing was he immediately appealed to God for grace. And, and, I, and I think if, if David were on this Zoom call right now talking to every leader in, in your link, he would say this, you, you may fall, you may fail, but it doesn't have to end anything. And, and that, is a, that is the thing in David that I, uh, all of his talent and his ability and his, his ability to reinvent himself in various phases of his life are incredible. But the number one thing was, was David's ability to bounce back from absolute disaster. What would have destroyed other men, David humbled himself and came back. That's exactly right. And even when he was confronted about you are the man you even brought out in your sermon, I thought it was so good. David didn't have to hear that from him. David could have, David, David could have taken care of business and kept that a secret and gone on with life, but David didn't do that. And that heart for God, I think is underestimated and that heart for, um, how he handled that adversity because Psalm 51 really during that time, people didn't know what to do with it. Did they, when David wrote that? Yeah. Um, remember the superscription on Psalm 51 makes it clear what he might've done is write Psalm 51. Uh, for those who are listening, Psalm 51 is deals with his um, affair with Bathsheba. Right. Which, he, which became complicated with conspiracy and murder. So we have to remember, it wasn't just Bathsheba. David had her husband killed. That's right. So, so he, he impregnated the wife of one of his subordinates. Then to hide the pregnancy, he had him murdered so that he was going to quickly marry her and he knew the nation didn't want a scandal, they would be willing to blink and say the arithmetic worked. Yep. But then along came this, uh, this prophet who denounced David and said, I know everything that happened here. But remember, this is not, this is not a 21st century republic. David is an, is an emperor in his country. He is the law. All he had to do was say, kill the guy. And they would have killed him and nobody, nobody would have blinked. But David realized his relationship with God was more important than his relationship with Israel and, and more important than his position as king. So he owned up to it. I did it. I did it all. And he endured the punishment, which was horrible. 
The punishment was horrible. Every time we sin, nobody sins in a vacuum. When we sin, we unleash destruction in other people's lives. And, and we don't like to think of that, but David endured the punishment. The other people around him endured it. He lived over it. And then God's grace took charge. Um, you, you might think, okay, the, the baby that was conceived through the affair, that baby died. But then the next baby that Bathsheba had was Solomon. So it's as if God says to David, all right, the child born of sin must die, mm. but the next child is born of my grace. And that's the child, that's the child of destiny. Mm. You know, David, for so many, you know, the book of Psalms are great. They're great for us now, but those are written in some dark nights of David's soul when he was wondering where God was and have you forgotten me? And do you know I'm here as a leader? Does every leader you think, and really it can be in business, but those that are trying to be a spiritual leader, they're trying to do it God's way. Do you think a dark night of the soul happens to all of us in leadership? By all means, it, it, it may happen weekly. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So yeah. true. Well, it's true. I think, I think if you can't live through the dark nights, you, you don't need to be in leadership. That I think that is uh, what you're saying right there is critically important. That there's going to come moments where everybody around you is angry at you, where you have just screwed it up, where you've failed, where you've fallen, where it's gone south, it, 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 and you feel the the ground drop out from underneath you. Now, if that's going to swallow you up, you never really were the leader you thought you were. And, and so absolutely, Mike, that I, I want to say a hundred percent. If you're not in a dark night of the soul right now, then thank God, but wear your seatbelt. That's right. That's, how did you get through? How did you get through yours? I even heard in your, in one of your messages on the 21 seconds, it's so good. I'm about a quarter of the way through that. And you talk about you know, you've had them as a leader. How did you get through your, and I'm going to say not dark night, dark nights of the soul as they've come at different points in your journey? How have you kept walking through those? Well, not to give a frivolous answer, but part of it is what you just said. Keep walking. Uh, I think that, that that's, if there's one thing God helped me with, it was, simply refusing to quit. Now, having said that, I will say to you, I have struggled on and off through my life, as I think many leaders have with some seasons of of depression, of darkness, of just feeling isolated and um, lonely and, and those things. In those moments, what can happen, and it's, it's a, terrible thing but what can happen is you feel like you you feel like you've messed it up so much you can't go toward God you tend to draw back so if I could just say the one thing that I felt God said to me is come nearer Mm. I see who you are see what's happened but come nearer and and that book 21 seconds uh 
came out of a season like that. I just, I just came to a place where I, I just, I know this sounds awful, but I actually couldn't figure out how to formulate prayers. Yeah. I, I just, I would stumble. I, and, and so I went back to the Lord's prayer. That's why the title of the book is 21 seconds to change your world. It takes about 21 seconds to pray the Lord's prayer. And I, I went back to the Lord's prayer and I mean, I prayed it a hundred times a day. I, I would be sitting in meetings where everybody else is talking. And in my mind, I'm saying the Lord's prayer over and over and over again, just to, just to hang on. Mm. But it became such a wellspring for me that I recommended to others now the Lord's prayer. And then I added to it the 23rd Psalm. So I said them back to back, back to back and began to use them in various ways. So I would say in the dark night of the soul, keep walking get closer to God, not further away, and find some instrument of devotional grace in your life. For me, it was the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. Uh, those are three things. This, this dark night doesn't have to end anything. It's one of the great verses of Scripture. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The sun will come up. That's I just... You know, you, you, there may be people listening and they just feel like it's finished. And I just want to say, the fat lady hadn't sung yet. <laughs> That's so good. I, I'm telling you, Dr. Rutland, those are, those are massive words because I think anybody in leadership, I didn't understand what I didn't understand. I didn't know what I didn't know. I remember when I took over at North Star, I don't know if you know Iker Ikerd, but we started North Star together. And uh, when he left in 03 and I was his associate and I took over in 03, he's like, Mike, I, I love you, but you're going to, you're going to feel things that you don't, you haven't felt before. I didn't understand that. You don't know, do you know, but, but there are dark nights and there are, and I know in your book, you said, um, early stages fulfillment, you may go through wars, setbacks and lonely caves. Yes. To all of those. Every leader yes. goes through them. What I'm thankful for is you kept walking. And I'm thankful that now you're still, you still have those dark nights, but you're still walking. You know, David, David was the man after God's own heart, knowing everything about him in the New Testament. David's a man after God's own heart. We know that. But my favorite verse about David in the New Testament was David served his purpose in his generation, and then he was done. He fell asleep. What do you think was the purpose? God created Dr. Mark Rutland for? What do you think when God created and knit you together in your mother's womb, what do you think was the purpose he created you for? Well, I, I think that the purpose for every one of us is to know him and to love him and to serve him. Um, and, and I think that's not what you're asking, though. I think you're asking what, what my feeling of of personal destiny are, okay, I never felt, I know there are people who feel their sense of destiny in a position or a job or an accomplishment. I never felt that. I felt it was leadership, that wherever I served, um, whether it was 
a pastor, a missionary organization, a university, wherever I served, that the purpose there was to, to be that leadership presence. And, and I, think, I think that was really, I felt more called to a purpose than to a position. Absolute gold, wasn't it? My goodness. I am so thankful that the Lord has put leaders like Dr. Rutland on this planet for their season of life because they have left this world a better place. That man has literally preached all over the world. He has led leaders in education and in, and in business and just in the church world. But you heard his operating system. You heard what makes him tick. And I tell you what, that's one I know for me, I'm going to share with so many of my friends. So I want you to do me a favor. Make this an episode as we end 2021 that you put out on your social media, uh, that you share, you, you can link it, link to it, share it with a friend, send it to them on text. And if you have time, hit pause, go and leave a rating on iTunes or review, which helps us so much climb those charts for others to be able to listen in. And the second thing is go to go to uh, Spotify. Spotify's now got a rating system, and I've got my first five-star the other night from my son. Thank you, Casey. You're a good man. And so uh, I hope you, I hope whether, no matter what platform you listen on, thank you for tuning in. I'm going to tell you, 2022 is coming out of the gate strong, and we have some amazing, amazing leaders to share with you in 2022. Richard Blackaby is going to be the first one. Ken Coleman from Dave Ramsey, uh, Ramsey Solutions, Tim Elmore, Christy Wright, the head baseball coach at the University or at uh, Mississippi State, Chris Lamonis. We have some good stuff coming. And you are going to get to benefit from all the great guests that are coming your way. Thanks again for tuning in today. I pray that your 2021 is wrapping up strong. And I pray 2022 in leadership will be your best year yet. Have a great one. Happy New Year. And can't wait to see you again in 2022. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.